Good morning. Good morning. Thank you to Mike and Katie for doing the music. Happy Fourth of July weekend. I hope everybody is doing something fun to celebrate this holiday weekend. For me, I'm I'm pretty traditional with my holidays. So every year on the Fourth of July, I like to find a, a British person and fight them. I don't. Do that. <laughs> First Samuel chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning, and uh, I'll read through the whole chapter. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and he will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets... The people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to that high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please, tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, 
He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And on this 4th of July holiday weekend, Lord, we thank you for the great freedoms we have in this nation. Lord, we thank you for the founding fathers who risked life, liberty, and property for forging a new nation. Lord, and we thank you for the countless hundreds of thousands of men and women who have fought to defend that freedom for over two centuries. And Lord, we thank you that while we live in a nation that is imperfect, Lord, one that is founded at its foundation, at its core, with giving us the freedom to worship you. And for that, we should praise you, Lord, and be thankful. Lord, we want to continue to lift up Doug and to pray for him as he's continuing to recover. And we're thankful for good reports that he's on the mend and doing better. And just want to pray that he continue to feel better in the coming days and that he be able to return back to his house uh, as early as possible. It's no fun to be in the hospital, and so we just continue to, to pray for your blessing on Doug and a full recovery. Lord, we also want to pray for uh, Mission Match, for this hospital we're partnering with in Ghana. Lord, I'm th- th- so thankful for what Mark had to share. And Lord, may we have hearts that are open to tangible ways how we can serve this hospital and serve kids in this nation, Lord. People who we might not ever meet on this side of eternity, but that we have an opportunity to be a blessing and to do things that are going to result in lives being saved. And so, Lord, may we take that seriously and may we, from what we are able to give, give generously. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, Blink, Author Malcolm Gladwell tells the story of an influential political figure from Ohio meeting a young politician named Warren Harding and being so impressed by the look and by the temperament of the young Harding that he instantly thought that this state senator had the potential to one day be president. The year was 1899. As Gladwell describes him, Harding was tall and handsome. He had broad shoulders and a naturally bronze complexion. And as he aged, he became more and more distinguished looking. He had a rich and resonant speaking voice. He looked presidential. In his day, people also commented that he looked like a Roman statue come to life. On March 4, 1921, that same man, Warren G. Harding, became America's 29th president. It did not go particularly well. If you look at rankings of best and worst presidents in American history, Harding is almost always in the bottom handful. He wasn't particularly intelligent. 
when he was a U.S. senator, he was absent for debates on two of the most pressing political issues of that time, women's voting and prohibition. He had a scandal-ridden administration for the two years that he was president before dying of a stroke in 1923. He had the look of a president, but he didn't have the intelligence, moral conviction, or leadership skills to actually be a good president. This morning, we're continuing in our series, The Rise and Fall of the First King of Israel. In our passage, Saul will become Israel's first king. In chapter 9, we were introduced to Saul. He was a man from relative obscurity, from the tribe of Benjamin, who had gone in search of his father's lost donkeys, but through his search, found the prophet Samuel. Now, Samuel had had a prophetic revelation the day before that he was going to meet and anoint the future king of Israel. And then he meets Saul, the future king. Meanwhile, Saul doesn't even know who Samuel is when he meets him. With that background, we come to chapter 10. And in this chapter, Saul will officially become king. And we will look at Saul's ascension to the throne in three scenes. First scene, Saul anointed as king. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So Samuel anoints Saul in a private ceremony. As always, anointing in the Old Testament is something done at the beginning of the ministry of a prophet, of a priest, and now of a future king. It's meant to set someone aside for a divine task. Saul is not yet king. And interestingly, just as we saw in chapter 9, this verse does not use the word king. It uses the word prince. And this is another reminder that even though Israel will have a human ruler, God is still the king. Saul will rule as God's emissary in the land. As a reminder, though this will come up at the end of the chapter, the reason why, the Israel, why Israel is getting a king is because they had asked for one. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites had been in various struggles and wars. Samuel's sons were not as godly as their father had been, and the people did not want them to come to power when Samuel died. And so they demanded a king. In that chapter, the Lord warned the Israelites about how badly it would go for them. Most more of the men would have to serve in Israel's army. More taxes would have to be paid. More goods and crops would have to be seized from people for service to the kingdom. But the people want a king anyway. First Samuel 8, 19 and 20 says, No, but there, is a, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations. That our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. They want a king because they think it will make life easier, even though they're told it will actually make things much harder. It's especially interesting that one of the reasons why they want a king is so that they can be like all the other nations. When God had chosen Israel and redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, precisely so that they would not be like all the other nations. Leviticus 20, 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. 
So you have a sinful nation who were trying to usurp God and who were graciously warned and yet still wanted a king anyway. Sometimes God gives us what we want. But in the process, we learn what, what we wanted wasn't good. Sometimes God's yes is a judgment. Is that because God is unloving? No. But man is sinful. And some of us seem to only learn things the hard way. Romans chapter 1 verse 28 says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God is the king Israel needs, but he'll give them Saul, the king they deserve, and the king that they want. They come to a second scene. Saul prepared to be king. Now, let's take a step back and look at this from Saul's perspective. He's just gone out looking for some lost donkeys, minding his own business. And the next thing he knows, he's being anointed to be the king of Israel. That's quite the series of events. What would you think if you were Saul? I'll just speak for myself. I'm kind of a skeptical person. There's lots of things I hear that I don't believe. Lots of things people tell me that I also don't believe. Maybe to a fault. I was thinking about this this week. Old Settlers is next month. If I were to win Old Settlers, I feel like I wouldn't actually believe that I had won until either the check cleared or the car keys were in my hands. I just, I'm skeptical. I think I'd have a hard time believing that a prophet picked me out of obscurity and that it was my destiny to be the king of a nation that before that has never had a king before. So to prove it's all true, the prophet scene will give Saul three signs or prophecies which will happen, which are meant to validate that he really has been chosen to be king. First, the lost donkeys will be found. Verse 2. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zilzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Part of what that sign is also doing is tying up loose ends from Saul's prior life. It's showing a completion of his task before he became king, that that loose end is tied up, that he is free of that responsibility, and now can go forward and be king. We see a second sign. People will give Saul bread, verses 3 and 4. Then you shall go up from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. I think that the New Bible commentary is helpful on this verse. So at Bethel, it's a place where there was a shrine where uh, people would take offerings and bread that was given to the priests. So these aren't just ordinary loaves of bread. It's bread that is for a specific purpose. And so the fact that people would give this bread to Saul instead of the priests is a reminder that Saul has himself been set aside for a sacred purpose. The third sign, verses 5 through 7. After that, you shall come to Gibeah, Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, before them prophesying. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. That sign points to the necessary skills to govern that Saul will be endowed with. Borrowing again from the New Bible Commentary. Once these signs had been fulfilled, Saul could have full confidence to act as king because God would clearly be with him. End quote. At this point, Samuel is still telling Saul what will happen. Next, he tells Saul what to do after these things happen. Verse 8. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So after the signs that Saul is given, he is told to spend seven days in this place called Gilgal and wait for Samuel. Gilgal was a city in the Benjaminite territory. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Gilgal was also the place where Joshua built the first monument to the Lord after the Israelites had crossed the Jordan into the promised land in Joshua chapter 4, verse 20. Verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, excuse me, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. That's probably the most hotly debated verse in this chapter. What does it mean that Saul was given another heart? Is this a metaphor for conversion or being born again? Given that this event happens prior to the new covenant, I don't assume that it refers to a new spiritual heart. And given the way Saul's life will play out, we don't see much fruit or a life that is particularly godly. But in being given another heart, I would argue that it points to Saul being equipped with what he needed and having the capacity and ability where he could have been a good king. It's also important that these verses mention that all the signs that Samuel has mentioned have come to pass. Continuing in our passage, verse 10. When they come to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Sorry. People who see this are shocked. Verse 11. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets. And the confusion continues. In some ways... This scene reminds me of in the Gospels where people are amazed with Jesus. A man who has come from humble beginnings, people say in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? But as I said, it's pointing to the fact that Saul had what was needed to do the job well. He would ultimately fail, but he wasn't set up to fail. With that, we come to our third scene. And we're going to move ahead a couple of verses. Keep in mind that no one yet knows that Saul is going to become the king. Verses 17 and 18. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. 
And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. So Samuel is giving a speech to the Israelites and he's giving them a historical perspective on what the Lord has done for the Israelites. God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He had delivered them during their wanderings from warring and contentious other nations. God had brought redemption for the Israelites. Verse 19. With everything God has done. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So it's another reminder that this is unwise, that they are going against God. God is allowing them to do this. But make no mistake that the people are trying to usurp God's authority over themselves. And so you have a massive gathering of the tribes of Israel. And you have a contrast with this group being gathered. Samuel is reminding them of what the Lord has done for them. But they want a king anyway. Throughout Saul's tragic story, we see him contrasted with the true king and the true savior. Saul was given another heart. But it is Jesus who gives his followers a new heart. Saul failed to honor God. Jesus never fails. In the Bible, we see stories about the various failures of humanity. Through Moses, the law was given. We also see, though, that we were unable to follow the law because we're sinful. God gives Israel the king that they wanted, and we'll see that he leads them imperfectly because no human king can adequately serve the role that the Lord serves in. We cannot earn God. We cannot be our own saviors. And Saul couldn't be the true king because that's not something that a sinful person can accomplish. Yet we saw that he was chosen and anointed. But it didn't matter who God had picked because any human king was going to bring problems because the world is sinful. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the good news, even in 1 Samuel, is that there would be a future king who would usher in God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. There would be a future king who would talk of a kingdom that was not of this world. There would be a future king who would lay down his life for his subjects. There would be a king who would rule and reign, and who would show his authority not only over life and death, but over sickness and disease, over nations and storms and nature. In his commentary, Richard Phillips points out that Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the final time on Palm Sunday, a week before the first Easter. Palm Sunday, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Five days later, he was crucified in that same city. And on Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, as crowds threw their cloaks on the ground, they waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, means save us in Aramaic. They welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as a conquering king. They gave Jesus the royal treatment that he deserved. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Saul's story begins with a man looking for some donkeys. And that's a powerful metaphor. 
for how Jesus is everything Saul was not. Israel wanted a king to replace God, and so God gave them Saul. But as fallen men will inevitably fail, God also gives Jesus. Back in our passage, it's the pivotal moment when the king would be revealed to the gathered tribes of Israel. Verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So they're casting lots, which is narrowing down the field. First, they cast lots among the tribes. A tribe is selected. And so they cast lots among the clans or the families within the tribe. And then once a clan is found, they will cast lots for an individual person within the clan, within the tribe. I don't know if I've gone to sporting events before where sometimes there's some sort of prize that they have. And at the beginning of the game, they'll, they'll tell you the, the section of the stadium that they're in. And then later on in the game, they'll tell you the row within the section. And then at the end of the game, they'll tell you the seat within the row within the section that they're in. It's kind of like that. Only this is something that is totally orchestrated by God. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Again, it is God who has chosen Saul to be king. End of verse 21. After Saul has officially been chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Saul knew he was going to be chosen. He knew the lot was going to be cast on him. And he's missing. Verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. It's a foreshadowing of things to come and of the poor skills as a leader that Saul would display. Saul was fearful and tried to run from his calling. Anointed, another heart, chosen, signs to confirm that he was chosen and prepared, and yet he hides. Verses 23 and 24. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. So the people see this king who has just been hiding from them. The king they wanted. And they see that Saul is taller than any of them. Now, when we were first introduced to Saul at the beginning of chapter 9, the text mentions that Saul was tall and handsome. This is how we meet him in the Bible. 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 and 2. There was a man in Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherah, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. They don't see a coward who tried to hide, but they see a tall, handsome man and respond by saying, Long live the king. The first king of Israel was not a George Washington. The first king of Israel was a Warren G. Harding. They had wanted a king so that they could be like all the other nations. And they got a man who looked like a king. They got a man who was tall, but who wasn't a leader. 
They got a man who was handsome, but who wasn't holy. The passage ends with the immediate aftermath of Saul's ascension to the throne. Verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. We see Samuel act, not Saul. We don't see any recorded speech from Saul, anything that he does. We don't see him doing anything kingly or royal. Once again, foreshadowing the type of king that Saul will be. He's weak and not a leader. Samuel writes down the duties of kingship. We don't know exactly what he wrote down. Deuteronomy 17 talks about kingship, so it's possible that it's an expanded version of that text. But then everyone is told to go home. Some are excited. Some are skeptical. An underwhelming start to the new kingdom that the people had demanded. It's interesting, and I didn't even really think about this when I was writing this sermon, but the fact that this is 4th of July weekend, where we remember our nation declaring its own independence, that we fought a war for independence to escape the tyranny of a king, King George III in England. And yet we have this idea of a good king. We have this idea of a king who is just and who loves his nation and who rules for the good of the people. A king who is wise and virtuous. He brings safety and security to his kingdom. Even though many of the actual kings throughout time have been evil, incompetent, despotic, and led poorly. Many kings today in the world are actually just figureheads who have little to no actual power. But the Lord is the absolute monarch over creation, who does rule with perfect wisdom and justice and goodness. Jesus talked of the kingdom of heaven during his ministry. And for the people of God, Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus invites us to live as part of that kingdom. There are so many other kingdoms that people want to try to live in. There's the kingdom of self, the kingdom of politics, the kingdom of money, the kingdom of work. But in Christ, we're meant to have a heavenly citizenship and to live the rest of our lives on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be the kings and queens of our own lives and say, my kingdom come, my will be done. But here's the problem. We're terrible at that. But we have a king who leads well. We have a king who points to righteousness and holiness. We have a king who laid down his life so that we can be part of his kingdom. And so we live as his kingdom people by knowing God, by communing with him, by serving him, by loving him, by serving others and loving others. And even though the world has fallen, we have the opportunity to live as citizens of God's kingdom, knowing that there will one day be an actual greater Manifestation of God's kingdom in his new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. But today, we have the opportunity to live as God's kingdom people, to live for God. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis said, The blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. So I ask, who is your king and where is your kingdom? Would you pray with me?
Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you that we have the almighty King of creation. And may we be his kingdom people, Lord. May we serve him joyfully. Lord, may we have a love for God that is growing day by day. May we have an affection for the Lord. Lord, may we know you and honor you and love you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.